I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. I'm Brian Moore, and joining me in the studio today is a World Cup winner. It's uh, England and Saracens flanker Maggie Alfonsi. Good evening, Maggie. Good evening. Coming up on this podcast, we'll be speaking speaking to Richard Wigglesworth and Reggie Corrigan, talking through all the things that went on in the Champions Cup. Plus, we'll be uh, talking to Leeds Rhinos Callum Watkins uh, about Super League and Alex Bruin about Super Rugby. Nigel Owens, as always, joins us, and remember... You can ask him or indeed any of us questions via the hashtag full contact. Later in the show, we'll be telling you how you can win the, this this signed rugby ball, which has the likes of, well, it's had all the former co-hosts on, so uh, there's some stellar names on there. Uh, every week you can join us on Facebook Live at 6pm. Just search for Telegraph Sport and you can listen to the whole show live on the Telegraph website. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review on with the show Maggie good to see you thank you it's good to be here yeah now you won the uh, Rugby Writers Award the Pat Marshall Award yeah um, when was that it was way back in uh, 2010 and I was the first woman to get that award yep. after I think 50 years 50 so, years and yeah. uh, you beat Richie McCaw to it didn't you yeah I don't brag about that too much but <laughs> well, uh, since you brought it up <laughs> well, I, might I, would. Well, <laughs> well, I was to tell people that but yeah it was absolute. it was brilliant you know um, my name was called out um, and there was a standing ovation as well so you know some impressive people in that room people who know rugby inside out did you know beforehand or? I did not know no um, what, did I, mean, what did it mean to you when your name was read out um, what it, was your reaction my initial reaction, oh, do you know, I, I mean, look, I knew the the other nominees. Uh, I mean, those names on that uh, for that award were very special. Uh, you could also got to mention, remember, uh, Brenda Venter was on there as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of, I, I didn't really think I was going to get that that award. Um, so when my name was called out, I was very shocked, uh, and then I had to go up and I think I had to say a few words, uh, and then by then I'd run out of words. So uh, it was very much an awkward <laughs> so few minutes. Anything. I had not prepared anything at all, so it was an awkward few minutes on stage. Um, but it was uh, just really nice to get a stand ovation, then to walk off, then for people to come up to me after and talk to me um, about you know not just not just my performances, but I think my England team's performances because yeah. it was not long after the Women's Rugby World Cup, which took place in England, and we had lost to New Zealand. England in the final so I know I watched that it was at Quinns wasn't it it was at Quinns yeah yeah um they had better kickers it. on the day they did have better kickers and also they reacted a lot better um they had I think three Simbins and we still didn't score a try against them uh, when we should have but yep yeah, sore moment don't talk about that anymore but we went on to win the World Cup in 2014 so that was the main thing um you've done that you yeah. your record rugby wise actually it speaks for itself if anyone wants to look it up uh, what are you doing now? 
Um, yeah, so basically, I guess my life has changed a lot. I, I now go and do a lot of um, public speaking, so do a lot of talks in corporate um, environments. I also do a lot of business coaching and business mentoring. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I work. What does that a, mean, by the way, exactly? Yeah. So, I guess in in a, a lot more detail it pretty much means working with um, obviously business clients but very much working with them to try and translate my sporting knowledge in Mm -hmm. terms of confidence resilience um, improving self-belief and then putting it into almost a a business mindset and trying to help develop leaders as well that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of the big thing really so um, the work that I do I work with a company called Women Ahead also known as Moving Ahead uh, and they help to develop um, mainly female leaders and just try and increase the the percentage of uh, female leaders in you know, business roles, um, especially on the boards as well. So I get what the, is the privilege percentage? To do that. It's quite low. Have you ever it's, it's, it is low. I mean, there's a big emphasis on trying to get thirty yeah. percent. They say if you get thirty percent, obviously, then you've got a real, well, at least got a bit of diversity. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's still quite low, and that's why there's a, a real big emphasis to try and increase more more female leaders. And what in, about in the game, the women's game? Um, the women's game at the moment, the work that I do, I, I'm currently I'm on the RFU council. Um, did and, you ever? Did you ever say in the? Um, Formation of the new uh, Women's Super League. Yes, so the uh, the new Super League, which just come about, um, officially will kick off at the beginning of next season, so in September. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it's basically going to mimic what the, the men's premiership is mm-hmm. like. And um, I think what's great about it, it'll hopefully create more opportunities commercially, um, also give it a, a professional structure. You know, we've seen it done with women's football uh, and women's net, or netball as well. So it really does work. Um, and it will allow the athletes in that programme to just to continue to develop their skills because we'll have a, you know, strong strong outfits in that. What about Litchfield? Because Litchfield... I knew he was going to very, do that. Very, well, was... of course I was going to bring this up. Because they're very upset. They're really yeah. upset. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know, I mean, Litchfield are, are one of the clubs that are, you know, they, they helped really bring women's rugby forward and they haven't got one of yeah. the franchises. Yeah, a very strong uh, strong team. Uh, they're currently sitting second in the women's premiership. So it, obviously for them not to be included uh, in the Super Rugby League for this coming season is, is quite a big shock. Um all the teams had to, when they were applying to be in the Super Rugby, they had to fulfil uh, a range of criteria. I don't know the ins and outs of it, what, what the criteria was and what they didn't complete. You know what? No one seems to know these criteria or how they were applied. And we're trying to get to the bottom of it, but you know, if you didn't went involved yeah. in directly then... Uh, the, for, for me, the, the, the challenge for women's rugby, and mm. when they get this right, it will take off you know, spectacularly is to bridge the age group gaps between 11 when they have to stop playing with boys because of the physical uh, aspect of it, Um, to have year teams, under 12s, under 13s, Mm. under 14s. It's quite a big jump. You might have a wins team in your area, but it might be under 14s and there might not be another one for another another county. So when they get that structured through the... How how will the... um, Super League address that or will it or is it just a start yeah it's just a start if I'm honest and the, the, the focus is really about developing that talent pool mm-hmm. you know we need to get I, mean, I fully agree with you there's a massive gap you know unfortunately for the girls if they don't um, have a, a girls section that are over 12 years old for them to join they end up having to either 
find another club which is miles yep. away from yep. them which has a section and you've got to hope that they, they continue to stay in the game so we have a lot of uh, we lose a lot of players at that age group and I guess the big thing for us is trying to keep growing that 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 um, that pool of players and, and the RFU are doing a lot of work on that uh, the Super Rugby um, competition what it will do is just increase the standard at the top of the, yep. uh, the end and then what we're going to start working on is, the, is filtering down to ensure that we have a strong grassroots setup. but I fully agree with you we, we want to make sure that we we can keep the girls when, when the you structure. when that when that comes it will be a, a, a major advance definitely a huge advance because we have we have got a lot of girls now coming to the sport and we've yep. seen what you know what yep. um the england women have done recently winning mm. the six nations so uh, women's rugby as a whole is growing well that's good um what the the champions cup yeah. and the challenge cup the european competitions were on this weekend uh for those of you who don't know i'll just read the results out saracens beat glasgow 38 13 Club of Verne beat uh, Toulon, 29-9. Uh, Leinster beat Was 32-17. And Munster stuffed Stade Toulouse 41-16. Um, I know you saw most of the games. What did you think of the overall quality? Uh, I think... I thought it was um, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It's great, great rugby to watch. Uh, I think you saw um, a real shift in the second half, especially. I think uh, a lot of the games are very competitive. I mean, I'm Saris through and through, so mm-hmm. obviously I, I have particular interest uh, in seeing how Saracens were going to get along against uh, Glasgow and. Um, just really impressive a lot of teams maintaining that momentum following um, a lot of plays being away at the Six Nations mm-hmm. and then coming back and then still putting in a good performance and, you know, if I look at Saracens you, yeah, I know Chris Ashton was, obviously wasn't involved in England but you know someone like him is still putting in good performances in and he is you know what Chris, so if, if Chris Ashton had a brain he'd have got far more caps I mean and that's I would say that to him anyway and he'd laugh but you know the, the interruptions in his career the self-inflicted ones mm. are, you know, they're just silly, yeah. uh, which is a real shame for him because he is still one of the best finishers in the Premiership. Um, you know, was he if he was playing for England? Who who knows? Yeah. Um, you know, with the forthcoming British and Irish Lions tour. Do what was just, the Clement Laverne too long game was a for me it was a typical French game, which unfortunately now means people just smack into each other, very large people. Um, with not much subtlety, you know, and power winning that. Um, you're probably too young, actually, to remember the French teams of old, which had Elan and uh, and were mercurial when they mm. when they got started. Um, but the and the top fourteen goes on seemingly for eleven, yeah. well, sorry, ten months. Um, what do you, what do you make of French? Rugby as a whole, yeah. French rugby as a whole, it's it's in obviously in, in a bit of a challenging place right now. Obviously with the merger um, of uh, Racing ninety two and Stade Français, mm-hmm. so I think it's in it's in a bit of a a difficult place. Um, and when we watch the French national side play in the Six Nations, you can see that there's a real emphasis on trying to get that attacking flair back and, and I almost feel with French rugby we, we are missing the old days of, of real you know flair Agreed. and just letting them play And but what you're seeing at the moment you know you watch the Clement and Verne versus uh, Toulon match uh, and you almost felt with Toulon they had no other options it was very it was very uh, unstructured no no uh, no decision making and and, it, and yes we say let's play but they really hadn't they didn't have many options where you felt with Clement Auvergne they, they had more to them and it was exciting to watch so you always feel with French rugby now you, you feel like they're going through this transition uh, and 
there needs an injection in it to, to bring yes, it back to somewhere. Yeah, bring yeah. it back to where it used to be. Well, let's. I mean, the the games as they were they were played out. Um, we've obviously been talking to people, Reggie Corrigan, about the two uh, Irish provincial yeah. sides and Richard Wigglesworth about uh, Sarri's win today. But uh, the Leinster Wasps game to me, and I asked Reggie about this, had a, a distinct uh, deja vu. A, of the England game in mm, Dublin. Of course, yeah. You know, the one side, very intense, defensively were very disruptive. Um, and you saw on the other side, players who you know uh, are leaders, players who you know are much more capable of making unforced errors mm. and being rushed and harried and not be able to find their way out of it. Now, when you find yourself in that position, what can you do? Oh, I... I guess you you always expect um, teams to almost when th- when things aren't going their way to almost find a way of bringing it back to uh, bring it back to our game game plan and bring it back to the basics. But uh, Leinster were, were phenomenal. I, I thought they they had a really good um, first half. They, they, their defence was incredibly physical. Um, like you said, you, you almost felt was um, weren't able to really. Get into the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kirtley Bill, he's a brilliant well, fullback. You mentioned he... Kirtley Bill. He set up what should have been, you know, a try for uh, Willie LaRue. And at that point in the game, they weren't too far behind. Yeah. It would have been a significant score. And uh, let me describe what happened. Willie LaRue uh, chose to put the ball down or try and ground the ball by a, one of these grandstanding dives when there was no one near him. And he dropped the ball. Right. You know what I mean? I. You could just you could put the ball down anywhere, two hands or whatever. But I I just I knew this happened at some point, and then Chris Ashton, you know, with his swan dive, it will happen to him at some point. But that just happened to be really significant to me. Oh yeah, I mean, at that point, I think the score was eight nil. So if uh, Was had got onto the scoreboard, it would have definitely yeah. kept Was in contention, um, and that. It was if you, obviously in slow motion, well not in slow motion, in real time. It looked absolutely fine because even I was, you know, cheering on Was at that point. Um, but you know, well done. To, I think Nigel Owens was obviously refereeing that game. I think, and uh, you know, well done to him to spot for spotting that. Well, he was guided by two Irish players, including Johnny Sexton. And I, at the moment, at the time, I thought, "What are you moaning about?" And then actually, I thought, "Well, well, he may have seen something." And then, you know, of course, the slow motion replays proved he was absolutely correct. Uh, and Quite apart from that, though, the, the game plan for Wasps, to play wide so early without committing enough defenders because mm. they were very cute, well Leinster defensively. And to me, that just gave targets for, for, the, for the outside players, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which they were really pleased to hit. Yeah. Um, and in well, the Munster game, we had a parallel with England-Scotland. You know, the away team commits a dull, stupid, irrational offence gets a player a yellow card in the first couple of minutes and it just never went. They were on the back foot from from then on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just makes you think, though, um, how, I mean, teams are getting smarter uh, and especially in the in the European cha- uh, Champions Cup, Championship Cup, uh, yeah. these, these teams are really, it's a lot to play for. Yeah. So the way... You always think the first teams lack composure in that first few minutes. You know, there's a couple of cards given away over uh, this weekend. So you feel teams lack the composure. But then also um, teams like Leinster, teams like Munster, you know, you really see their class and they they know how to play a good 80 minutes of rugby. And then they're just very smart and and tactically um, control the game from start to finish. Well, Johnny, I mean, 
Johnny Sexton, the only thing that you know might hamper him, I'm sure he'll be first choice fly half in mm. New Zealand, is the fact that he throws himself around, you know, physically with no regard seemingly for his physical safety, and and you know, and people target him as well. Uh, he got a bit of a knock at the uh, at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I just wonder whether down in New Zealand, where they are quite cute at this sort of thing, whether or not, um, you know, physically, you know, he'll, he'll be able to do stand up to what he's definitely coming. Yeah, I mean, as a 10 as well, you also expect it to, yeah. to come at you. I think, obviously, the commentators, when they're talking about the game, uh, as a 10, you, you should be prepared for it. Well, you and know that being an open side. I, as a 7, I was tar- my job was to target you know, target the 10 and take them out. And Did even, you ever hit anyone late? Oh, God, I, I, yes. Many times, that was my that was my job uh, to let them know that I am I'm hovering around them. Yep. Um, and, and obviously in, in the in the game against Wasps, he did get a, a slight late late hit uh, and got and picked up a bit of a knock. But it's important to let the ten know because you do not want to let the ten have uh, space and time to play. And especially with someone of uh, you know Johnny Sexton's capabilities, you need to put him under a lot of pressure. Well, I mean, we're talking about he's a, a fly half, but the the distinguishing feature to me. I mean, because Glasgow went to the Saracens with big support behind mm. them. He took a lot of fans there. Glasgow have been playing really well. They have been largely responsible for a lot of the good things that Scotland have done, and I'm sure that they would have liked to put in the same disciplined, claustrophobic defensive effort that Leinster and Munster uh, put in. But Saracens pulled them all over the place, and in particular halfbacks oh, yeah. with the decisions. And they just couldn't do it because... They were constantly facing different problems. Yeah. Well, Richard Wigglesworth um, and obviously Owen Fowler were brilliant today. They controlled the game so well. Um, I mean, Glasgow's discipline wasn't great. Um, they were under a lot of pressure, though. They were. I mean, that's what Saracens do so well. They almost, um, their defence almost forces you to um, make errors in, in attack. And you can see the way Saracens play. They. They react to that loose ball and their ability to counter-attack is phenomenal. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter who's got the ball. Uh, you feel like someone's going to make uh, an impact, even their bench when they come on. I mean, Scott Brits well, the when ben- they come on. Well, the bench on. Is, is significantly strong. And I just want to put a special mention in for Scott Brits because not only is he one of the best footballers around, certainly <laughs> as a forward, but today he took a clean strike against the head. Yes, I saw it. I did yeah, see it. Hardly ever seen. So you're my hero, Scott. Um, Why is it so hard? I, I'm so intrigued. Well, because now, the ball's the usually new... fed to the number eight. You've got to, you've got to be nine foot three, you know, to try and uh, get anywhere near it. Uh, so big, big credit to that. Yeah. I also about Surrey's. If you certainly if you're playing away against them, um, you if you don't start well, they are one of the best sides at maintaining leads. They do the right things. They play in the right areas. Farrell kicks his goals, the scoreboard keeps ticking over, and then you're looking up thinking, A, we haven't had lots of possession, B, we've no no momentum because of that, and we're behind the scoreboard. And Glasgow, in the end, they were forced into a couple of gambles, especially with kicks to touch, which they would have been more conservative with. They'd missed both of them. Yeah, you can't... Um, And that just compounds it. And you, you could see... The look on some of the, you know, certainly the forwards' faces, thinking, "Oh God, you know, we're going to have to come back, you know, for another sixty yards now, another seventy yards, 
And they do that really, really well. They do. I mean, you know, we were talking about uh, Glasgow having to take risks against Saracens because if you don't push it, you can't guarantee that you're going to stay in the game. And and against Saracens, you you can't let them get too much of a lead. Um, you know, Saracens are also renowned for being very much the comeback kings as well. So they can they can be behind going into the going into the second half. But they're such a team that they back their confidence and their ability to. They don't believe that they can lose a game. I mean, they didn't have the best, obviously, period over the Six Nations because their main guys are away. But we saw what they did against Bath um, in the Premiership and now, obviously, how they're, they're continuing that form. Well, um, they, they've learnt. Um, they failed in finals, mm. crushing terrible, emotional, scarring defeats when they were probably favourites, actually. Yeah. But from that, you've now got a hardened set of players and especially decision-makers you know, who just know when to do, you know, the, the, the right thing. And, I, I, you know, I don't think it would matter really uh, who captained them, to be honest, because the, the, the spine, the core of the team, you know, has that experience and they find ways to, to, to do things. Of all, the, of all the teams, actually, they are probably best equipped to go to, well, it would have been either Leinster or it's yeah. Munster now, you know, and... and cope with and find solutions for that sort of defence defensive effort. Yeah, I mean, we saw what Saracens did uh, during the pool stages in the European Championship Cup uh, against uh, Toulon away uh, and the challenges they went through there and I mean in the first half they were ahead and in the second half they just had to be resilient and just ha- hang in there keep that lead um, I, they're a side they, they're not afraid to go away I mean most people obviously playing at home that's the advantage and what's great today um, at, at Saracen's home ground there's 15,000 people there yep. so even when they go away the, the Saris fans will travel I mean it's going to be brilliant Saris fans and Munster fans all together um, sea of red um, but what's going to be great is that both teams um, will love and f- live off that pressure mm-hmm. um, because it's a big game and I'm, I'm quite looking forward to it. And I think the last time Monster made it to the final and went on to win it was in 2008, I think. So I'd have to look that ages up. Ages um, ago. Well, we will see. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions. Time now to uh, speak to the victorious Saracens scrum half, Richard Wigglesworth. Good evening, Richard. Evening, Brian. Evening, Maggie. Evening. Very impressive today, uh, I have to say. The Maggie and I were just talking about Saracens' flexibility, you know, and the way yep. in which uh, they're able to deal with changing situations and, and, and parts of the game. How much of that is down to past experience and how much is that down to the ability innately from players? Um, I think both. I think experience plays a huge amount uh, in the bigger games. Having been there before, a lot of internationals who've played a lot of big games and tend not to get too flustered by the occasion, but know sort of how to get emotionally right for them. Uh, We also do a lot of work talking about situations and what might happen in the game and what we would do. Um, So those sort of things hold us in good stead going into games. Because today, I'm sure that Glasgow would wanted to come out and put, you know, a lot of pressure defensive line, and you know, but they weren't able to because of the way that the tactics were mixed with drives, uh, the kicking game, the fact that the forwards didn't take the ball just one out; they were varied angles. Um, how much of that is structured, and how much is it off the cuff? 
No, we worked on in the week um, that we knew they were going to come with this crazy line speed. They really do fly off the line, so we thought we would make all our passes a little bit shorter and a little bit tighter and make sure that if you get on the front foot against that sort of defence, they're rushing off that hard that we felt we could have picked some holes, which is mm-hmm. which is what happened. And uh, we had a couple of nice little moves to get us around and about, uh, getting us some inside shoulders that got us on the front foot. And then after that, if you're rushing, when you're short of numbers, it's tough. Um, and I think we sort of just got that balance right and got our drive working towards the end of the first half, which then sort of helped the rest of the game as well. I mean, Richard, obviously at half-time, it was 14-3, I think. Um, and I think you had two two disallowed tries didn't you at the start Um, as a team were you very much thinking we should be much more ahead um, or were you content where you were were at that very moment in time yeah we were pretty disappointed Maggie we were a bit frustrated Mm. um, with sort of not not finishing it was the story of the game really I think we could have we could have closed out a lot earlier than than we did and so there was a little bit of frustration in the changing rooms but the message was we're playing well Um, don't change the plan don't try and and we'll be all right. And then they they sort of scored the try from the cross kick, and you're thinking, oh no, we've we've dominated this game, and somehow there's a score in it. But I think that goes back to the experience of sort of keeping your head and sticking with the plan, and not trying to uh, pull rabbits out of hat. Just um, get on with what we're good at, which is good front football and the forwards to put laying a good platform for Owen and the rest of the lads to sort of do the thing. When when you're discussing the stuff uh, midweek, uh, you you obviously know who's starting and who's on the bench yeah um and you'll discuss various scenarios when you're on the do you know when the replacements will come on no it's changed a bit we used to have a very structured replacement plan um down the years we uh, i would know that was coming off um after 50 minutes whatever was happening and uh still a couple of lads that know what maybe what time they're coming on uh but generally now there's a little bit more flexibility with what we do and, and how the sort of game's shaping. So uh, some might, some lads might have an inkling, but it's not quite as structured uh, as we once were with that. But presumably, you know, uh, in the preparations midweek, you'll go over each and every scenario, depending on who is coming on at what time? Or We do. We do a lot of swapping in and out, to be honest. We, um, we, we pride ourselves on preparation, so that means that the bench have, have really got to come on and know what's going on. Last week we set a standard against Banff. Bath. They all came on sort of 30, 20 minutes to go and really um, up the ante. And uh, probably the first time we've done that in a while. So we were really pleased with that aspect of the game, and we sort of focused on that again. That the bench have to make that sort of impact. Big shout for it. The last two weeks has been exceptional. Coming yes. on 20 minutes just wreaked havoc, fresh. Um, so those sorts of guys are, are making a massive impact. So, Richard, obviously, you're going to be going into a semi-final against Munster um, away. You know, what do you have to, I guess, work on to ensure that you come out with a, a win? Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a tight one. I think defensively, um, they're as good as I've seen. So, we know that it's going to be uh, a war with, uh, especially how, um, you know, so much emotion attached to what they're doing at the minute. And they're just they're right at the top of the game. So, we know away in Ireland do We've got to work it out, but our coaches are very diligent. They'll do a lot of work between now and then uh, about maybe having a couple of little plans in place. But I think it'll be us trying to impose our game on them and them sort of doing likewise. But I do uh, envisage quite a tight affair. Do you boys look forward to playing away? Because I, I feel like you almost you rise to the challenge when you're you're playing away from home and you, I guess not not perceived to be the underdogs, but you, you know you're in that outside environment. Do you, do you look forward to those 
those big games? No, I do. I think we are a little bit sadistic like that. We do like going to places where you sort of back against the wall. Maybe if you can't expect you to win, maybe everyone thinks you're at disadvantage. And, and we pull pretty tight as a squad there and think that we talk about how special it would be to win games like that. So, no, we have we have enjoyed um, going away to big places in the past. We we've never come out on the right side of them all the time, but we've had some we've had some good wins in some very tough places. So hopefully we can take a bit of confidence from that. You talk, you talk, You mentioned the tightness of the the squad, and you're, you're going to lose a player who, you know, has been a very significant contributor um, to to, uh, to Saracen's success. Uh, Chris Ashton. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about him? I understand why he's going, but what, what's the squad thoughts of the feeling about that? No, we're going to miss him. Um, he's a, a character, often a misunderstood one, um, but we, we 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 love him. You know, he's, he's um, he gets on your nerves sometimes, but I'm not averse to that myself. So, no, he's a character I enjoy. Um, he's usually fun to be around, which is important, as you know, Brian. In a squad, they have these characters that uh, that are, I think Saracens we've allowed him to be who he is because what you don't see with him, he's such an unbelievably diligent trainer. Um, Fantastic professional, so um, when he has his moments of silliness and stuff, we all forgive him because we know he's a, a good bloke and he's trying his best. I know that Toulon is going to score an absolute hatful of tries for them, uh, so they've got a good signing. But we all knew his, his reasons for moving and, and what he wanted to do, and uh, we're not a squad that you know, be remotely bitter about it, really. I think we're just going to enjoy him while we've got him, and uh, we've got a pretty good replacement coming the other way, so it comes to uh, the team behind the scenes doing a good job there, but so we're doing what we can and hopefully send him off with uh, some good memories. I tell you what, might be maybe interesting. Can you uh, briefly give us a breakdown of the days from between now and uh, you know preparing? What will you do next week? So we have a Saturday game next week. We've got a short turnaround, uh, so we always have the day after a game off, so we'll all have tomorrow off, um, and then we will be we'll be in. Tuesday for weights and a very light training session, very organisational based, what moves we're going to use, why we're going to move them. We'll have reviewed the game at lunchtime, the, the coaches. And then Wednesday we have a tougher day, particularly for the forwards. We know they like it tough. We have weights and units in the morning to the forwards, do all the scrums and balls. Actually, Pont's about doing some kicking and, <laughs> and some moves. And then, uh, again, lunch, more meetings over lunch. And then um, more of the physical intense training in the afternoon. Then it'll be Thursday off, and we'll have a light captain's run on Friday, ready for the game. Hey, and you're, 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 I'm sorry, Rich. I'll just say your game's uh, against Harlequins at Wembley Stadium. It uh, is, yeah. Do you, you must love. I, mean, I live. I literally live quite close by uh, the stadium, and it's a pretty impressive place to 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 sit in. You know, sit on a chair uh, there, but to play on the on the turf must be pretty. Pretty ex- exciting experience. I mean, are you looking forward no, to playing there? Yeah, awesome. Um, sometimes maybe after a quarterfinal, you'd, um, you'd maybe have to try and lift the lads and try and make sure emotionally you're all right. But if you get to play in front, uh, at Wembley in front of that many fans, then you can't be anything but, but up for it and excited for the game. But, you know, we're spoiled rotten. We get to play there once a year and, and stuff. Obviously, as a kid, you dream playing football. And when you're not good enough at football, you somehow might play for a rugby team that play at Wembley once a year. So... Um, you know, we're uh, delighted that we get to play there. Which Saris usually have a an away, I don't know what you call it, an away do, away day, away for, or whatever. 
Um, in, in the, yeah, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I do want to mention that, but uh, in the past, you've been to the Munich Beer Festival, which is you know, obviously uh, it says does what it says on the tin. What's have you had this year's, or where are you going this year? Yeah, we had we went to uh, Saint Anton skiing in um, skiing in right, December. A couple of lads that are quite proficient at it, but the rest sort of stayed in the bars and um, enjoyed the. The Richard, what's, what was your what was your fancy dress? Was, didn't I saw a picture on Twitter? I, I, would, think. Je- I would Jesus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well aim for the top, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I went the whole hog, yeah, Jesus wig beard. Yeah, it went down quite well. But the boys made a great effort. I particularly enjoyed Jared Saunders with Mrs. Claus with the dress that was far too short for skiing in St. Anton. But uh, the lads went down with it, and uh, <clears throat> we had a great couple of days. Richard, just finally, um, I know that uh, Saris have done a significant amount of work trying to get academy players, um, you know, through, and indeed, you know, some have started to come through, and the you know, quality is very good. Uh, what's the next strata like that you're seeing coming in? Yeah, it's it's so tough now. You uh, you have to make a decision on the young lads. So. so young, you think what the the threat out of school, you forget, and you get them in the pre-season. And, um, but they they do seem to be getting better and better. We've got um, a couple of young lads who who look the real deal. We've got uh, I wouldn't like to name check them in case they get begetted, but you've um, we have got a good a good crop coming through. We had a lot of England under twenty players this year. Uh, we had a lot of England under eighteen players. So um, I think our staff are doing they're doing a great job. But I think to be honest, that's across all academies. I think yeah. they're all doing a brilliant job. Um, and it's and they've been doing a brilliant job for a while. I think they took a passion for a while. I think we're seeing the fruits of their labour the last few years. We've got all these players playing international rugby or playing Premiership rugby that are very young, um, and and they're, and they're not just playing; they're playing really well. So I think uh, tip the hat to the all the all the uh, academy uh, coaches, but particularly ours. Richard, you're you're not uniquely placed to them, but very uh, well placed to to answer this question. What is the standard? Of the Premiership, like now, as opposed to with the you know the middle start of your career. Yeah, it's a different game. It really is. Um, I think it's hugely more athletic. Uh, I think that's the most obvious point. I think um, we've got front rowers and um, that can run about now instead of just scrummaging, or vice versa. They they can do both jobs. Uh, but I think I think the biggest change you've seen is in the second row. We used to have these bean poles, didn't we, that were would at line out or we'd have a big heavy guy that was good at scrummaging and then we produce Marotoji and George Crew that can run all day and uh, have got great skills and great game understanding and stuff like that. So I think the, the forwards will come on massively and then I think obviously the the bats um everyone's getting bigger and stronger and, and faster but I think the skills have, in the last couple of years have gone through the roof. I think we went through that period of everyone getting big and running into each other in lumps and then realised, right, how do you get around these big, strong defences, these rush defences? And, and you can only do that, obviously, with physicality, but you need some skill, you need some variety in your game. And I think the last couple of years, particularly, I think we've seen a, a much improved um, skill rate in, this, in the Premiership. Richard, um, well done today. Um, go and have a rest and thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. Thank Cheers, you. mate. Cheers. You, you were you were Saris, weren't you? I was, and uh, it's quite interesting because Richard was talking about the uh, Saracens Academy, um, and when I was part of the England women's team, um, I was actually invited to go along to the Saracens Academy and train with the, with the lads. 
So at that time, there was people like uh, Owen Farrell, George Cruz, uh, Jamie George. Um, and I even remember Eddie Jones coming down to deliver a coaching session. Because uh, Eddie, I mean, Eddie was coached. He was, he was a yeah. director of rugby at the time. Director of rugby, yeah. Right, yeah. And uh, he had to come down every now and again to the academies to do a session. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was at that one session which he turned up. And uh, and I tell you, don't you do not answer Eddie back. You just get <laughs> on with it. And uh, and I, I have to admit, I you know he was really impressed me. He was like you know you kept up with the lads, and I, and I gave a few good hits as well. So. Um, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and I have to admit that academy structure they've got at Saracens look I can only talk for Saracens because yeah. I know the club um, it's, it's in, impressive and it's bringing lots of really good athletes through well Eddie was at um, a mini rugby festival in Camberley today which my nine year old daughter played at and when she said oh really excited Eddie Jones is here and I said to her did you tell him uh, who your dad was and she said no why <laughs> said, yeah okay quite crushing really I, I didn't know what to say when she said that that's kids for you anyway that is, is that, let's get off that subject um, family strife uh, we can now talk to uh, Reggie Corrigan I hope about the uh, performances of both the Irish sides in the quarterfinals Reggie are you there mate I am Brian how are you no, not too bad Reggie um, there's something been missing from my social media timelines uh, over the weekend, which are no Irish rugby fans complaining that the, the 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 tournaments have been rigged so that English and French clubs win them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, uh, yeah. everyone's gone very quiet over this part of the world. Um, but I think uh, we've reason to be. I think we proved a point at the weekend, yeah. uh, both with Munster and Leinster. Of the two, can you say which you thought was the more impressive? Because they were both, you know, very good. I think uh, the more impressive result for me was the Leinster one simply because I didn't expect it to go that way. Mm-hmm. I really felt uh, Leinster had the tougher of the two games this weekend, Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, Wasps came over here um, with a very strong reputation, um, going very well. Uh, lots of talk about the move to up north and, and, and this team spirit and bond that they'd built up and all of this kind of stuff and Cipriani playing well and Curtly Beale setting in nicely and you know there was just a lot of talk around this squad and, and, and what they could offer and what they could do and what they were planning on doing in mm-hmm. this Champions Cup so um, we were very worried you know here uh, that Leinster were going to suffer as a result of that but I have to say I was amazed with the way Moss performed yesterday. I thought they were very, very poor. Um, and I'd say Dai Young probably feels the same way. I heard him interviewed afterwards. He was being diplomatic. Um, but he did pretty much lay it out that the first half they were appalling. And uh, they couldn't string two passes together. You know, I was just amazed by it. And, and, and you can't give Lens that kind of a lead and expect to, to stick with them, you know. How much of that was down to um, self-inflicted and how much was down to the, the, the pressure that the Leinster defence put, put on them. Yeah, but I mean, Brian, it was, it was huge uh, pressure that Leinster put on them, but I mean, what did they expect? They, they hardly thought yes. they, were, they were going to go over and have Leinster kind of sit off them and uh, allow the likes of Wade and Daly and, you know, Willie LaRue to get ball in space with all the time in the world to, to look brilliant. I mean, that's never going to be the case. But, when, like, you know... Their, their reaction to that pressure was what stunned me. I mean, you know, instead of kind of, you know, dragging themselves together and trying to consolidate and try to hold on to the ball a little bit, they kept kicking it back. Cipriani was the best Leinster player that was out on the pitch yesterday because he just kept kicking the ball back to Leinster. He kept 
making terrible passes, terrible decisions. Um, the conditions weren't great, but both teams had to play it. And they just played it right into Leinster's hands. They just made it so easy for Leinster and Sean O'Brien and the defence to come up really, really hard, uh, push them back time after time after time. And I can't remember what's gone through more than three phases in that whole entire first half. Um, and as a result of that, they never once looked like scoring. I mean, OK, one moment of brilliance from Curtis Beale. Um, you know, made a brilliant break from out of the defence. He was probably the most impressive Wasps player yesterday. Uh, brilliant uh, out of the defence. Great line from Willie Leroux. And then Leroux, you know, makes one of the most ridiculous errors uh, you, you could imagine. I do think at 8-7, it would have been a very different game. Um, you know, Wasps would have weathered a bit of a storm. They were 15, 20 minutes at that stage, getting hammered by Leinster. They'd only conceded eight points. And if they could have just gotten back to 8-7 at that point, I think maybe Leinster would have asked a couple of questions of themselves. Uh, but that was a, oh, it was an unbelievable error to make. Uh, Reggie, Maggie Alfonso here. Um, Hi, Maggie. I, I just want one player which particularly impressed me uh, in that game was was Jerry Carberry, um, man of the match, twenty five carries, two hundred uh, meters. Is he a player you know, you know, to watch out for uh, in the semi final as well? Well, Maggie impressed everybody because um, certainly. Yesterday morning, I was on radio talking about the fact that I, I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was the right decision to pick him at fullback. He's he's a nine ten predominantly. He's mm-hmm. played there all of his young career uh, at school. He has very little experience at fullback. Leinster have been playing them there a little bit in the Pro Twelve, but as you know, the Pro Twelve is a different competition yeah. to the Champions Cup. Um, so we were all wondering, you know, maybe it should have been Kirshner that was in the fullback back, or maybe put in uh, Nasiwa or someone mm-hmm. experienced like that, but. Um, Sure, Lancaster has a huge hand to play in this as well because he obviously uh, is quietly going about the business in the background with, with Leo Cullum, but he's got a huge influence there. And he and they have obviously seen something in Carberry that's very different and um, can offer that type of attack that we saw yesterday. He had a magnificent game yesterday. Mm. That's the only way to describe it. They pressured him. They put lots of high balls up on him early and asked questions of him. He dealt with them brilliantly. And his attacking threat is uh, its unreal, the way he did it yesterday. Now, look, I've got to put it in context, because um, I have watched him a lot in the last number of weeks, been working a lot of the Pro 12 games. And when he's been at fullback, defensively, he's still a little, little bit out of the woods. Yeah. You, know, he, you know, he doesn't really know uh, 100% what he's doing there. Uh, so teams will test him defensively if they run at him uh, uh, until he learns that position. But Wasps didn't, and they never questioned his defensive, defensive abilities yesterday. I think he made uh, one mistake, didn't he? I think that's one mistake, yeah. and it led to one try. But other than that, he was pretty much faultless, wasn't he? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, if, if, if they're not going to run at him and test him, you know, it's a happy day at the office for you when you're going into fullback and uh, they're just going to kick high balls and catch them all day. So he had, a, he had a magnificent game, an absolutely brilliant game. And he's a, he's a star of the future. Whether that be 10 or 15 still remains to be seen. Uh, one thing that I... Uh, liked about the 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 Leinster performance was that both he and Ringrose, who is not one of the you know super large powerful players, made really significant contributions through their you know deft footwork and you know the dexterity they had and you know I just hope that that gives hope to other players and indeed a message to selectors that you do not ne- you do not have to be you know the super large, um, you know, gym bunnies that we've seen before. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, to be fair, Brian, that's kind of been the way it's been in Ireland for a, a number of years because certainly O'Driscoll and Darcy yeah. uh, in those Irish jerseys weren't the biggest men in the world. Uh, they weren't gym bunnies, um, but they both had electric pace, 
grace, agility and, and uh, evasiveness is, is the word I'd use. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of harped back to what we used to see in France uh, back when you and I can remember <laughs> they were able to play rugby, you know. Um, you know, that, that elusive play that you want to see. And uh, with Ringrose, he's quite a big guy, uh, to be fair, but he is... Um, he is incredibly agile and, and, he, and he has got that turn of pace. And before you know where you are, he's gone, gone away from you. And, and the big guys just can't get near him. So I, I, I think the best teams, and we see it with the All Blacks a lot, the best teams in the world are those who can get away from players and create space and use that space. And, you know, if, if you're just going to pick a team of 15 guys who are going to smash the ball up all day long every day, teams will work away around that, you know, especially good defensive teams. And I think... You know, both Munster and Leinster this weekend, both both of them showed um, the English team and the French team uh, what it means to have proper defences, organised, structured defences up against you because there wasn't an ounce of space yesterday. There was nowhere for anyone to find uh, any room. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult to play the Irish teams. And, and the English team saw that themselves uh, in that last game. And, and, and that's just the reality. Um, defence is huge here, uh, right on the par with, with attack. And I think... get. You know, both in the Premiership and and in the top fourteen, that gets forgotten about a little bit uh, in favour of you know fancy attacking rugby. So, Reggie, do you think that Leinster will be able to do it against Clermont away in the semi-final? Do you think that they'll be able to take them on, you know, in front of a, a big French crowd who will be you know looking for for uh, an opportunity to make it to the final again? Well, Maggie, it'll be it'll be a big uh, deal if they do. Um, there's no question about it going over to Clermont. Now, look. Going over to Claremont five years ago was a very different thing, uh, or Toulon for that matter, or wherever you might want to go in France. It wasn't, certainly wasn't, um, it was a lot more difficult than it is now. There's no question, I think, on their day, Leinster can put in a performance against Claremont over there and win. Um, Certainly if they try and play the way they did yesterday um, and and, and defend the way that they defended yesterday, they're in with a very good chance of winning the game. So it's not as formidable a task as it would have been maybe five, six years ago. That being said, Claremont did a job on Toulon today, uh, which is no easy task. Um, and as you said, over in France with the big crowd behind them, it, it's it's going to be an upset if they do win. There's no doubt about it. it, it they will be the underdogs, uh, but it can be done. And, and I think they'll very much feel that they have an opportunity to go over there because they've done it before. They don't fear French teams the way we might have done years ago. And they'll realise, you know, it's a great opportunity. Well, Leinster have got a... Sorry, the Munster have got a different uh, proposition in Saracens. I don't know if you saw Saracens win over Glasgow today, but it it was it was quite impressive in the way that they made the right decisions, the way they varied the uh, attack, the way they kept the pressure on uh, Glasgow, not just in defence, which is normal, but also mm. the way in which they took the ball in and, and how they did that. Now... That will probably be, they're, they're probably the best side equipped to try and get over this sort of, the atmosphere that's created in Dublin, Dublin the way that, yeah. you know, Irish sides do that. What are the factors you think will be important in that game? I, I, I'm very impressed with Saracens. I, from the outset, I thought Saracens were uh, my team for, for the championship. And, and that's being honest, but I really think they're, they're an incredible outfit very well coached, very balanced team, you mm. know, um, and it's no easy task to do what they did today and get that kind of result. I was surprised there was so much in it at the end. Uh, I thought it would be closer, 
but it lays down a real marker of, of, of how good a side they are. I think you're right. I don't think they'll fear in any way coming over and taking on Munster and having that whole, um, you know, Munster aura around them. Munster did great yesterday. It was a, it was a good performance. But like, let's not kid ourselves. Toulouse are not the superpower that they once were, and they're no Saracens. There's no, there's just no comparison between the two sides. Toulouse did what French teams do. They came over, they huffed and puffed a little bit for a while, and then they ran out the gate. Um, the way they usually do and you know it's, it's quite sad to see the way French rugby has gone and in particular mm. a great outfit like Toulouse who remember are the they're the record holders in this championship and, and to see them fall apart the way they have it's it's pretty sad and they need to do something quick over there to sort that out that being said Munster had to deal with what they had yesterday and they did a good job that. now um, there's a bit of an X factor about Munster this year it's hard to know how they've changed the season around um, as dramatically have, as they have from the past two years um, and, and we all know about the emotion of Anthony Foley and what that did way back in October. But leaving all that aside, you still gotta you, you still gotta play rugby. You gotta bring in new systems. And Erasmus, he deserves incredible credit for um, for what he's done with Munster Rugby. And as a result, South Africa are looking to get him back. So there's a lot of there's a lot of hassle over here at the moment about all of that. Um, but I'm not so sure. You know, over here I'll get torn apart for for Munster bashing. But I'm just not sure that they're a good enough team to beat Saracens because I'm so impressed with Saracens and, and the way that they are. But uh, And if Saracens come over with the right frame of mind, and it has to be completely different to what we saw from Wasps yesterday, um, but if they come over with the right frame of mind to take on Munster, um, I think Munster will find it a totally different challenge. So, Reg, I'm going to ask you then, so what specifically do you think Munster have to do then to ensure that they do get a win against Saracens? Because, you know, teams have beaten Saracens before. Um, yeah. But what do you think Munster have to do, especially in that first half when, when Saracens are usually at their very best as well? They have to do what, Munster, what Leinster did yesterday. They have to starve Saracens of any possession. They have to completely smash them in defence. They've got to be in their face and uh, bring in what will be a very partisan crowd uh, into the, into the uh, equation as well. So they have that 16th man on their back. And when that sort of emotion gets going behind Munster Rugby. It's incredible what it does to the players. Players play way out of their skins, way above their levels at times. And that's the X factor that we talk about that's almost impossible to tap into or understand. So from a Munster point of view, they'll be saying to themselves, look, every single moment, every loose ball, every scrap, uh, uh, every inch of ground, just we, we've got to be all over that. We've got to be in Saracen's face, starve them of possession, if they do have possession, make sure that they're forced into what Wasps did yesterday, where they're almost terrified to try and pass the ball and they just kick it back to them. Um, their scrum has to perform well, which will be an area that they'll be a bit concerned about because they don't have the biggest, strongest scrum in the world, you know, uh, and their lineout has to perform. So the, the first phase possession has got to be completely on the money, scrum, lineout. Their breakdown work has to be incredible. The choke tackle, which is employed so well here in Ireland, has to be perfect to stop... Uh, Saracens getting any form of quick ball and their defensive line has to be sorted out. Now, that's a lot of factors and a lot of ducks to line up. Um, so you got to, you you know, things have to go your way in the day for that to happen and Saracens will be doing everything to make sure that they don't line up. Uh, Reggie, you mentioned the breakdown there and I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm happily coming to the view that it's probably even more important now than, than, than the set piece often, the way you're performing there. Now, I don't know the extent of collusion between the directors of rugby or head coaches in the Irish provinces and the national setup, I doubt it, it matches the you know the seamless stuff of the All Blacks. But there are, there are so so many similarities in the way that Munster and Leinster 
you know, performed in and around the breakdown that I, I find it difficult to to not believe, you know, there's some communality because, you know, in, in attack, they're very precise. They get the right numbers in, not too many. So, and in defence, it's the same thing. The first two men are a damn nuisance. They might not win yeah. the ball, but they have a disproportionate effect in slowing it down, which leaves, in either scenario, as many players as is possible to either attack or defend. Now, is, is, am, am I right? There's, there's some communality or not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes a long way back as well. It's not just something that's come in in recent times. It, it's, it's, it's a number of years in the making. Um, and I suppose the most important thing about that breakdown area and, and the work that's done is Gone are the days of rook inspectors, you know. There's nobody going to a rook for a rest. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, everybody is now going to a rook to be effective. And if you're not going to go and contribute something to that rook, you're out looking for the ball as a carrier or supporting the next ball carrier. So any form of laziness that might have been there in the past is well and truly gone. And that comes from the top right down. So that when these guys go back to their provinces, um, that message is also instilled to the players around them. And you're right, there is. There's communication from top to bottom and bottom back up again in terms of the, the, the type of play and the style of play that that's, um, nationally wants to be played. Now, there'll be subtle differences between all the different provinces. Otherwise, you know, they just they just cancel each other out when they get to play each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably comes more from attack than anything else. But I think the most impressive thing about how Ireland deal with breakdowns is the complete effectiveness around that area. So you're yeah. right, two players go in, they have perfect body position, they don't come in from the side usually, and they come in in the correct manner, they clear out a body, they get it done, they, they're effective, and it's on with the ball, and it's, and it's move on to the next phase. And then the opposite is true when you know they're trying to defend opposition attack. They don't waste time lying on the ball or you know getting in the way or giving an easy option and, and, and giving penalties away. They wait, they listen to the referees, and, and you watch the, the way they, the Irish players react. If a referee shouts at them, O'Brien in particular, you see him do it all the time, he just lets go. And they, mm-hmm. they'll just concede defeat on that, and they'll say, right, because he knows that the bollocking he will get of Joe Smith or Leo Cullen or Lancaster for giving away a penalty in that position mm-hmm. is a lot worse than allowing the opposition have the ball for that moment. Well, interesting, uh, insightful, as always, Reggie. Thank you very, very much. No worries, Brian. Good to talk to you. Cheers, mate. Take it easy. Competition time. I preface this uh, in the opening. And thanks to The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance who support this podcast, you can win a signed rugby ball. Now, that doesn't sound that much, but it does have on it the likes of uh, Alex Corbusiero, Jim Hamilton, Cap Merchant, Nick Evans, Maggie Alfonsi, Tears Delport, Craig Chalmers, and uh, I think... uh, if someone teaches me to write, I'll, I can probably do it as well, actually. It might not be joined up. but uh, And look, all, all you have to do to be in a, with a chance of winning this is you go to uh, the telegraph.co.uk forward slash rugby union and you click on the competition link and all you have to do is fill in the article. You don't have to answer any questions. Just fill in the article. The competition closes at midnight on the 8th of April 2017. So make sure you enter now with a chance of winning uh, that signed ball. And let's hope... If you do win it, you don't put it on eBay because we don't want that, all right? Maggie, um, very interesting that Reggie was talking about the... I don't mean collusion in a bad way, I mean it's in a good way, between the coaching setups at the Irish provinces and the national team. Uh, we've known, I've known for a long time that you know, New Zealand have had this for years and years and years and have a very 
significant influence in the way that I'm sure Eddie Jones wished he could do with all the directors of rugby in England uh, and he's certainly missing completely in France. Um, he also mentioned, you know, the fact that there's subtle differences. If you were, when, when you organise, when you're organising women's rugby, mm -hmm. can you get that sort of stuff, do you, do you reckon, for the English national effort from the new franchises? Yeah, um, I, you know, I think obviously the aim is to make sure that there's a this really good relationship with national the national coaches uh, and your 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 club coaches mm -hmm. um i think it, the the challenges are that you <laughs> As a national coach, you want to try and make sure that you're having an influence uh, in those club teams to ensure that when those players come through, that they're, they're, that they're playing a certain way that allows them to play, um, I guess, the very best quality of rugby. So in terms of women's rugby, I think it's, it's, it's trying to get... The coaches obviously want to have a grip on the... I guess the standard of players coming through and an influence on those clubs. But this is a bit more, though, isn't it? We were talking about actually, you know, looking at the the patterns of play, the techniques yeah. used, the defensive, uh, you know, structures and and so on. Yeah. So I mean, as a player, I mean, I, I when I was playing, a lot of the the England coaches always came down uh, to but to either do some sort of sessions with your with the clubs to ensure that um, I guess those clubs are fully aware of what's going on mm -hmm. in, at the national level and I feel you know every now and again when you, you see the Eddie Jones he's at certain clubs not necessarily doing delivery but he's obviously there uh, and he's got, has a good relationship with the clubs and I think that's quite important mm -hmm. to ensure that um, that players and that players are coming through and that they understand what's required when they get to the England level In terms of preparation uh, the, the fact that England women have been able to give out and look, let's face it, these are not huge contracts with lots of money. No, them. no. They just allow um, the women who've got them not to have to work and uh, and so on. Um, can you see that being extended, you know, from the current number? Uh, yes, I do. Um, at the moment, the, 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 the number, I think, is 38 in total. Um full-time athletes uh, as part of the program which is brilliant because but that's we've never had that you know when I was playing I, I had to work full-time as well as being an athlete uh, you know join the club <laughs> <laughs> I know, do you know that's, that's why it's done isn't it Brian yeah. that's the way it's done and I have no regrets that for me it allowed me to to, to still have other things outside of my rugby life um but the the reality is is nowadays the sport is moving on and you have to be a professional athlete if you want to compete against the very best. Um, and you know I I'm hoping and I do do expect it will happen in the future. We'll see more um, more athletes uh, get full time contracts and that the number be extended so you've got a greater talent pool to select from um, in terms of quality of athletes. But for the England women's rugby team, it's come at the right time as they have the Women's Rugby World Cup uh, mm -hmm. this year in August. And the aim is to become, you know, champions uh, again. And they'll become the first England team to be able to go back to back. So if they can do that based on this, this improvement and this change, it will only help uh, them as a, as, a, as a country and as a nation. Time now to uh, cross codes to the great game of rugby league. I'm really, really pleased that we can... Uh, speak to a, a man who recorded his 200th appearance today uh, for Leeds Rhinos. Callum Watkins is here. Good evening, Callum. Evening, Brian. You OK? I'm not too bad. Uh, what does it mean to you to, to, to get that um, that milestone? 
Yeah, yeah, very proud, proud moment for me. Uh, you know, there's been some fantastic plays for Leeds. I've played many, many games, but to, to play 200 games for Leeds is uh, something that I'm very proud of. And uh, to get the win was a bonus as well. And um, yeah, very proud to to be a part of it. As as everyone knows, um, Leeds lost three well iconic players and uh, struggled a little bit thereafter. But this season. It's uh, you know it's it's looking good to the extent to which um, put the uh, put the Warriors away now. Brian McDermott described it as a real tiresome game. I, did, I didn't quite understand what he meant about that. Did, did, did you know what he meant about that? No, I'm not really entirely sure about that. To be honest, you know, <laughs> it's always it's always tough and intense between us and uh, and Wigan when we play. It's always a huge game to be a part of, and I think. You know, during the game, I think it were both teams were were trying their absolute best to get the win, and there was a couple of errors at times, and I think uh, it was a pretty tough game in terms of that. But you know, it's uh, it's something that we needed to to, to get a good result on because um, you know we we had a bad result about a month ago, and we we needed to respond to it, and winning the next four games was huge for us, but especially playing against the the, the champions. I think um, to get a result at home. Uh, against them was yeah. was was pretty special, so uh, we're pretty pleased with it. So, so what what's changed to make this this significant difference between you know Rhinos this season and previously? I think last season was you know uh, the developing phase. Obviously, like you said, with the with the three players going, they were you know huge in terms of how how well they played and in terms of their leadership. And I think last year was a a phase where we needed. To develop and bring more more leaders into our team, and I think mm-hmm. it took uh, a lot of time to do that. And um, you know, confidence went down in terms of that, in terms of our results and our performance. And we got a bit of uh, a good form going into you know near the back end of the year, but by that time it was too late, and uh, we had to reflect on on that and have lessons learned. But you know, we had to move on from that pretty quickly, and uh, obviously this year's started pretty well. Um, you know, a couple of uh, hard results that we've had to take, but at the same time we're you know performing better than we have done last year. So uh, you know, for us, it's just uh, keep doing what we're doing and uh, keeping our feet on the ground and and, con- and continuing what we're doing and uh, hopefully get a, a few more wins on the board. Mm-hmm. Well, Warrington have now got a point, which is uh, I'm sure is very pleasing for their fans, and it, the fact that it came. You know, against uh, against Hull, is probably more significant. Can you can you is that the catalyst that you think will propel them forward, or or are they are they still lacking? I think they could take a lot of positives from it. I think you know, uh, they've for, for their standards, they they know they've not they've not performed to the best that they can. You know, mm-hmm. but the players they've got, uh, they'll be disappointed with how they've started. But you know, for them, they just They've got to keep doing what they're doing. They they they're trying they're trying their best to get the result. They just need that result where they'll boost a little bit more confidence. And I think with the with the draw they did, they had with Hull, um, they were they were a few points down and they got themselves back in it and could have mm-hmm. won the game. So they they take a lot of confidence in terms of that. And you know, especially with us coming in, uh, to their place next week, it will you know they'll be they'll be hugely confident that they can uh, come up with a good performance. Mm-hmm. But for us, we've just got to focus on what we need to do and 
you know, prepare for for a very good Warrington side next week. So, yeah, like you said, it's you know it's it's been tough for him at the start, but as soon as they get the, a few wins across the board, you know, they'll they'll, they'll they'll be right up there again. And you know, I think that with the players they've got, they 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 know they, they should be doing better. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside, which I sort of understand how it's gone with them, but Catalan Dragons promised an awful lot last season. Um, uh, this season, I mean, the, the, the week they were shipped you know, seven tries to uh, Wakefield at home. Now, I know they've been. Is, it, is this just all all down to the amount of you know personnel changes or or, or something else? It's hard to say, to be honest. You know, um, they've got a really good team, and you know, especially from last year. You know, they lost a lot of players, a lot of key players as well. But they brought a couple of players in as well, but a few a few important players that could help them along and. Obviously, we've got the, the Greg Bird, who's um, who's out at the minute. So, you know, he's a huge influence for their team. So they're missing him a little bit, and um, you know, just it's just confidence, I reckon. In, mm-hmm. in in terms of that, they're just a little bit down on confidence at the minute. You know, they 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 got a, they had a decent performance last week where they started pretty well, but they just you know fell behind there in the end and. You know, you've got to give a lot of credit to 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 Wakefield as well. Uh, mm. I think they're they're a really good team, and you know they can play well with the ball. And I think you know they they played there with a lot of confidence after they got a result last week. And going to play there away at Catalans, it's uh, it's always a daunting task to to get there, go there, and get a result. So, mm. you know, I think you know they just need to move on to to, to next week and. They just need that result where, again, they just need a little bit more confidence in themselves. And, uh, you know, they got the players to, to, to be right up there competing. So, yeah, it's uh, they'll be disappointed with that, but, you know, they've got to move on pretty quickly from it. OK, just a final uh, quick word about, uh, well, the league leaders, Castleford Tigers. I mean, they've been developing, uh, you know, a very significant uh, contribution from their coaching team. You see this coming in, in previous years. And when you've got... People like uh, Luke Gale, Joel Monon, Hattrick of tries each. Um, are they clear favourites or are we reading a bit more into it than I should at this point? Well, like I say, you know, at the moment, they're, you know, they're the team to be at the moment. And I think by the way they're playing, the style that they're playing, you know, it's really hard to stop. And, um, you know, they've, they've got some great players. They've got some really good players that are continuing to improve each year by year. And, you know, this is a big year for Cass, obviously, and uh, you know the coach very well. You know, Daryl Powell does a great, yeah. great job with them, and uh, you know, the way they play with the ball, I think they've, they're an outstanding side. So um, it's a huge year for them in terms of, you know, are they going to compete at the end of the year? And I think, you know, they've just been, you know, a tiny bit off the past couple of years, but you know, the opportunity is there for them to to uh, to, to capitalise on what they're doing at the minute. Yeah. They just got to keep their feet on the ground and continue uh, performing on the field. And you know, uh, you know, they're going to be an hard team to stop. But yeah. you know, we've got we've got we've got plenty of other teams that can compete as well. So you know, it's going to be a tough tough. You know, next few months now it's uh, coming coming near to the you know mid stage of the year. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's going to be uh, a fantastic uh, next few months now. And yeah. you know, hopefully we can see uh, with the weather. Hopefully, getting getting better. You're going to see plenty of more, you know, uh, special tries and and fantastic games to be to be a part of in Super League. Well, Callum, thank you very much. Congratulations on your reaching your 200th cap. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Ryan. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers, bye. Well, very shortly we'll be uh, not only discussing Super Rugby, we'll be discussing uh, things with Nigel Owens as well. But I think uh, we can now speak to uh, Alex Brune, the Australian uh, rugby journalist, about uh, Super Rugby. Are you there, Alex? I am, Brian, but I wouldn't describe anything to do with Australian rugby as super at the moment. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, I I thought, actually, uh, first half, the Reds, I thought they were you know, they were quite impressive and then they just fell apart. Yeah, well, I've got some statistics for you because rather than sound like a broken record as I've <laughs> yeah. been the last few times, I've used statistics for you. These are very alarming. After six rounds, no Australian team has beaten a New Zealand team. Yep. And the tally is now 11-0. And even worse than that, only one Australian team has beaten a South African team, and it's 4-1 oh, to that, South African team versus bad, yeah. Australia. So um, it's 15-1 overall. Now, we, we, we've discussed this before, but I, I wouldn't mind revisiting it. On the one hand, you want you know rugby union to develop as widely as possible in Australia because it's probably third... Uh, sport behind rugby league and uh, and cricket and, and and football or soccer as they call it down there. On the other hand, you, you can't do that if the if the franchises are not competitive. Well, it's just it's it's a very very strange year because you actually look at the New Zealand teams and a lot of the New Zealand teams have got a lot of injuries, so mm. they're playing lots of new players. But they seem to just believe in the style of football that they're playing and the style of rugby that they're playing, whereas the Australians just have to have have seemed to have a total lack of confidence. So, I mean, the Brumbies are the top team at the moment. They are 10th. They are 10th out of 18th. They're the top team. And there's four Aussie teams in the bottom seven. And overall, there's been Australian teams played 27 games. They've won six and lost 21. How much of that is down to um, the strength of the playing squads or the, uh, the way they're being coached? Is it, is it possible to identify a reason for that? I think bad coaching is a lot of it. And I mean, I know that's a big call. And I mean, I personally know Nick Styles and think he's a great guy. And I think that David Bessel's the new guy at the force, is trying hard. And Daryl Gibson, of course, has a great record in rugby. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a tough call. But if you look at the New Zealand teams, they just seem to believe in their skills. And it's really interesting. A lot of the games, as you saw with the Reds, are very close. Or the Australian teams are even on top when you get to the 60-minute mark. But the New Zealand teams, they stick to their structure. Mm-hmm. And in the last, and they believe in the style of rugby that they play. They keep moving the ball. Eventually, they believe that their skills will shine out and they, they come through in the last 20 minutes and win the match. Whereas the Australian teams just seem to fold up. They seem to get tight. But even worse than that, there doesn't seem to be an application. The Waratahs um, got hammered by the Crusaders on the weekend and missed 47 tackles. You didn't miss that many tackles in your career, Brian. Uh, well, I never, I never tried 47, to be fair. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I wouldn't have missed that many had I tried them. So, Alex, uh, Maggie Alfonsi here. Um, Hi, Maggie. Alex, so what, what has Australian rugby got to do to turn this around? Because, you know, this is not the Australia of old. You know, I, I'm so used to growing up seeing Australia be dominant in super rugby and international rugby. And, you know, what have they got to do now just to turn this, this almost sh- momentum shift um, back into a positive state? 
It's really tough at the moment. I, I think that some some leaders have got to emerge and the, and the players like the Stephen Moores, the Michael Hoopers of the world have, have got to stand up those those key wallabies and start to perform at that level. Then perhaps rest, the rest of the teams might follow them. But the big problem is, of course, we've got to get this sorted out, whether we're going to reduce back to four teams, whether they're going to keep five teams. There's this tremendous uncertainty mm-hmm. in Australian rugby, which is really contributing to it. And the South Africans have played it brilliantly. Because the South Africans are going to say, everybody wait for us and we will decide in two months' time whether we're going to cut our teams. And if we cut our teams down, then we'll cut down an Australian team. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Australian rugby sits in this uh, perpetual state of not knowing what's going to happen next. And it just, it contributes to it all. I mean, the one thing in our favour, though, is is for the June test matches, the Wallabies have a very kind of easy program. They play Fiji, they play Scotland without the Lions. So they've got a They've got a chance to rebuild in June, but I mean, Super Rugby this year, you've almost got to write it off. And the only bright spot, as you would know, Maggie, is the Australian Women's Sevens team, yeah, which yeah. is the only Australian team that seems to be doing any good at all. They haven't won a league, they haven't won a, um, a leg yet, which is a shame. But um, they are they are doing pretty well still as a as a nation and and, and as a, a sporting team. You're right. Mm. Uh, Alex, so it, just on that point, actually, um, I remember going. Uh, to watch a State of Origin game a long time ago with a mate of mine, Australian. And they, at half-time, had um, the final heats for the disabled uh, Olympics team for in the 100 metres. And he said to me, he said, you watch, this was pre-Sydney, he said, the, the, the disabled games, the Paralympics, will be as well-supported out here, not like Atlanta, you know, as, as um, the, the able-bodied games. And he was right. I just wondered the attitude... Uh, to 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 women's rugby out there. Yeah, women's rugby. It's it's really interesting. The Australian rugby union are really pushing the girls as the big selling point in rugby at the moment. Mm-hmm. And there's a big boost down here in women's rugby, especially women's sevens. So if you looked at the marketing, say for the Sydney sevens, which has been a massive hit over the last mm-hmm. two years, the girls were the major. Uh, Charlotte Caslick was the yes. face of. The sevens down here. It wasn't one of the Australian men or even one of the international men. It was Charlotte Caslick who was selling the sport. So I think that's a really, really positive thing. And I think more girls are coming into the game. So, I mean, that's a positive thing for the future, but it doesn't, of course, address the issues that are facing the men's game. And the real issue is, of course, Australians love a winner. They hate a loser. Mm. And so the crowds are just, you know, just going through the floor at the moment because people don't want to come and sit there and watch Australian teams lose, nor do they want to watch them lose on TV. Well, I mean, the the problem there, it's a cyclical thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How much um, responsibility does the ARU have for what's going on and how culpable are they? Well, you've got to say, you've got to say partly part of the blame must lie with them. And you remember David Nusifor, actually, we had him as the high performance manager and they actually got rid of that position. But the brain drains happen for a lot in Australian rugby. I mean, there's a guy called Eddie Jones who's doing not too bad at the moment. <laughs> you know, he was kicked out of Australian rugby because he had a bad year with the Reds a few years back. So, and, and he said, well, thanks for Eddie. We don't need you. Goodbye. He went to Japan. And then I think he's, he's, think he's somewhere over in the Northern Hemisphere now doing <laughs> yeah, okay. He was, it was so, my, he was at my daughter's mini rugby festival this morning. I know that. Okay. <laughs> um, you, I tell you what, so, do, do so, what you Australia, Australians must be hacked off by the fact that not just in rugby, but all around the world in loads of sports, Australian coaches are making really significant contributions to other countries' efforts. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, you look at our, our, our Jake White, too. I mean, he mm-hmm. was over here with the Brumbies. 
and was sort of discarded because they went to they went for Ewan McKenzie as the Wallaby coach. Then of course Ewan was discarded himself. Mm. So we just don't have you know. Whereas you look at you know, look at New Zealand, you look at the the way that Steve Hansen's come in after Graham Henry. They've had mm. only had two coaches in fifteen years. Yeah. So it's that succession planning that yeah. works so well, and there's a stability there. Whereas Australia, we just keep throwing people out and then trying to get these new people, in and then hopefully they will be successes, and and they're just not. So. It's a really difficult situation here, and I think the ARU does have to take part of the blame because they've allowed this situation to develop. Mm -hmm. Well, we will see, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you before South Africa make the mind up about what they're going to do. Thank you very much, Alex. That's so fine. Nice to talk to you. Cheers, Bye, Maggie. Thank you. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team. Maggie, before we uh, speak to Nigel Owens, we've got the feature Lions Watch, which is backed by QBE Business Insurance. The games, the European games, were seen as uh, deciders in a couple of positions by by some people um, as to which players would or wouldn't uh, get on the plane. Uh, I think that was a bit overstated because um, if players perform significantly well in the Six Nations, that will probably carry a little more weight. But when you look at uh, the claims of people like uh, Elliot Daly, uh, James Haskell, you know, and, and so on, how, how much uh, influence do you think the loss will have had on, on, on players like that? Um, I think it, it wouldn't have had a, a big uh, influence. I think you know, see Warren Gatlin's about. He's watching in the games. Um, he would have based a lot of, I would imagine, uh, a lot of his selection still on how some of the guys would have performed during the Six Nations. I mean, he did openly say that he's still considering George Cruz, even though mm. he hasn't played due to his injury. So, um, look, one bad game doesn't mean, or well, they didn't have a bad game, but one non-great uh, team performance doesn't mean they're they're bad individual players. Uh, and Warren Gatlin constantly talks about he wants players with that mentality, you know, um, especially going out to play in New Zealand. It's a different kind of rugby. Um, so I don't think the loss today would have made a mm-hmm. difference in this uh, selection. But there's, there's some players who've really put their hands up over mm-hmm. over the weekend. Um, you know, CJ Stander is always a, a, a talented athlete for me. Um, well, I mean, we, we saw Ringrose make a lot of things, but yeah, um, and a Henshaw, I'm pretty certain will be at least on the plane. Um, what about them as a starting pairing? Oh, that'd be. I think it'd be. Um, it'd be. I mean, they've they've done very well together for Ireland. Because uh, it, it's, it's, some... it's likely they might have the Irish halfbacks, uh, which would mean Owen Farrell yeah. would would miss out. Yeah, so I, oh, I don't know. Look, you can't you can't ask me that now. Look, I'm lying. Well. This, this is too much of a pressure. <laughs> um, do you know the, what, what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw my my uh, ring in the hat. And actually, today a lot of people have been talking a bit about Chris Aston. I know look, he's not playing for England, but wouldn't it be amazing to have him make uh, you know a lion squad? I mean, look at the look what he does on the pitch and his his ability to finish. And against New Zealand, you've got to back yourself as a winger. You can't you can't shy away from those opportunities when they come at you. In, in sheer playing terms and consistency in the club game over the past three or four years, you will not find many equals in terms of finishing, in terms of contributions to success and try scoring. Uh, I mean, unfortunately for Chris, you know, the lack of international rugby has taken him out of the spotlight. And I don't think that he can get that back no. from a club thing, even if it were to be, you know, a final winning appearance 
uh, in the Champions Cup. Can I ask you a question? You can, yes. Who would be your Lions captain? Oh, still, look, I, yeah, OK. This was all nailed on early on, depending on which country you supported. Because the Welsh said Alan Wynne-Jones, the Irish said Rory Best, and uh, it was seen there. I, Alan Wynne-Jones, some questionable decisions in the first two games. Uh, standard of play, I thought it was maintained. Rory Best was uneven. You know, he had some very good games and he had a couple of poor games. Uh, so I don't think it's as straightforward as it was going to be. And I, I think it it depends also on the makeup of the squad, depending on how many players get from each country, because you have to have a, some sort of balance. And uh, Owen Farrell's name keeps coming up, mm. but I'm not. It's a very the Lions tours are not places to learn things. They're not finishing schools. You've got to go there with players who know what they're doing. And I just think, although captaincy um, is not the be-all, end-all in the way that cricket is, it would be a hard uh, task for you know Owen to, to try and nail down a starting place and take the extra responsibilities uh, on of a captain, notwithstanding the fact that I, I'm fairly sure he will be an England captain you know, at some point, you know, fairly quickly. And that brings you back to... Uh, the perennial, well, there were favourites before the uh, the Six Nations, and you've got then the the prospect of well, will they get in the Test team? I mm. will Alan Wynne Jones get in front of say Launchbury? Uh, probably. Yeah. Well, I told you maybe he probably will, and if he does, then I think he will be captain. Yeah. Okay. Um, because you, as I say, you cannot have inexperienced players in, in, in any respect really for Lions Tours, they are not places to learn things we have got Nigel now I think which is good, Nigel, good evening Nigel Owens Brian, good evening, how are you? I'm, I'm alright, I'm alright uh, I think Maggie, do you want to have a first question uh, to Nigel? I'm really intrigued to know, I know um, the referee can call at any time to see uh, what's happened prior to the acting of the scoring of the tribe but at what point is it that the referee can really say nope I need to go back and see it now um, in, the, in the process of the, the conversion? Well, the, the, the protocol in place is um, you, you can check for, for foul play from any time from whistle to whistle. So if you restart with a scrum, let's say the scrum takes place and foul play happens before the next stoppage in that period, if you restart play again then, and you're into another phase now, so you've restarted with another scrum, you can't, can't go back. You can check foul play any time mm-hmm. when whistle to whistle. And the same thing goes with um, with a try. When a try has been scored, you can check foul play any time before the try is scored from when play restarted until the try was scored. Uh, or if you're checking for um, offside, anything but foul play, you can only go back two phases. So there's a knock-on, you can go back. And then you've got until the conversion uh, then to, to check. So what, what, what happens, what a lot of referees do is, and I do this myself as well, so maybe we'll award the try because it looks good to us. We award the try. And then as you're walking back, you, you've, you've got a little bit of doubt in your mind. So what you tend to do, then you tell the team, well, look, have a look at that for me whilst we are walking back. And if the team will come back and tells you, yeah, everything's fine, good, carry on, and then you carry on. But if he comes back to tell you then, then... And you prevent the conversion taking place, mm-hmm. and then um, he can he can he can check for you then. So that's that's what we do as referees. It's just, just try and and sort of stop going to the TMO too much. Really. So you can check things on the run then, and then mm-hmm. if he needs to step in, you'll tell you right. And I'll stop. 
we need to have a look at something. No, so no, that's, I, that's how I, it all works, really. I thought the law was, yeah, you can do that, provided the conversion hasn't been taken, and w- w- which led a lot of people to say, if there's a dodgy try, get the ball and drop kick it, and then they can't review it. Um, <laughs> you're asking me a question I can't answer now, Brian. You're asking oh, a decision on the I've weekend. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to remember today. What day is it? Oh, yes. Yeah, right <laughs> Sorry, but I just thought that that, that that was the case. We're going to, we might, well, tell you what, if, if we will clarify that uh, when we speak to you next time. But, yes, we've got to, we've got to clarify <laughs> But the, what, at what point, we know when they have these decisions, do I kick for goal, do I kick for touch, and captain says one thing, kicker says, no, I'm not doing that, whatever. Uh, at what point, uh, and the indication from who, whom, is the binding decision? When you're kicking for goal or not? Um, well, I tell you one thing that, that that's not as straightforward as people think because a lot of people will say it's the if the actual goal kicker will tell you, you know, because at the end of the day, I think the captain will tend to go with the goal kicker. If the goal kicker tells him, look, this is just a bit too far out of my reach, and I'm, you know, oh, the wind is strong or for whatever reason, like I'm, I'm not feeling confident getting this over, and he'll say no, and then the captain tends to go with that. But but if if you've indicated, <clears throat> if the kicker or the captain tells you. I'm 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 going for for the post, and you indicate for the post, then then they must attempt to go to the post. Or if the kicking tee comes on, so let's say you give the penalty, and all of a sudden the the water guy is running on, and the kicking tee is on the pitch, then then that that that, that penalty will take place for the post because there's an onus on then your kick the your ball your water carrier or the guy with the kicking tee, whoever he is, who is normally the kicking coach, there's an onus on him as well that he cannot come onto the field until the referee indicates. That the player is going to the for the post, um, but if he does come on before he does that, then then you must take because what's happened sometimes in the past is, you know, the run the guy runs on with the kicking tee. Um, I want to watch my local village play twenty years ago, and the guy who came on with the kicking tee, and because we had a great full back then, was kicking all the points for Ponderbeam, and he was kicking this is going to be a draw game, and the guy ran on with the kicking tee, uh, the, the kid with the kicking tee ran on with the kicking tee, and then everybody thought, including the defending side. He's going to go for post here because they're going to get three points. He'll go to extra time. But of course, as the kicking tee comes on, everybody walks back. He just taps it quickly, scores, and, and scores a try. And then there was um, a protocol brought in then, a directive brought in that if the kicking tee comes on the field, as bought on the field, then, then you, must take, you must take the points or attempt the points then. So take just, the points. just to be absolutely certain, it's the goal kicker, absent of the kicking tee coming on, when the goal kicker indicates, that's it, not the captain. Yeah, you, you will get, if the goal if the goal if the goal kicker tells me Nigel and Green for the post, then I point to the post, mm-hmm. then 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 you take you take the kick then. Okay. And except the captain to come and, and give the goal kicker a good old ball again <laughs> if he thought he was going to do it. And well, it does happen. Yeah, kick. it uh, does happen. Yes. Now, uh, Brett Gosper, the uh, the chief executive of uh, World Rugby, tweeted last week that they they had a very 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 um, important and productive meeting. With uh, top coaches and referees, is that is that right? It was excellent, uh, Brian. It was. Um, Where was it? The, it was in in London on. Oh, I think it was Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, it was in London, and you had the the ten coaches of all the the, the, the tier one sides mm-hmm. there, and then you had uh, myself, Wayne Barnes, um, 
Jerome Gassez and Jakob Piper as the referees and also mm-hmm. Alan Roland obviously as the head of referees and Craig Joubert then from the his role in, in, in the refereeing and the Sems and stuff as well. So and it was very good. It was very open, it was very transparent, it was very, very productive where um coaches would put forward um things that they felt were not being refereed like it should be, uh, whether in law or wanted clarification on things right. that should be refereed in a certain way. And then we would also then say, well, yeah, no, listen, this this is the law, so we can't do this. And, you know, Alan would say, well, look, if there are things that are brought up for the good of the game that needed a law change, so if everybody agreed, all the coaches agreed, and the referees there agreed, yes, this is good for the game, but it needs a law change, that will be going into the process and we will mm-hmm. rugby to get that law changed. Or if it was a directive where when we get together in May as a training camp in Australia for the referees, if there's something that we feel has come from that meeting, the coaches say, look, you know, we, we want this refereed better. So what was what was quite good about the meeting is it was quite open and everybody had their view, which, which is, is the good for the game. So, yeah, it was very, very productive and very, very worthwhile, really, it was. Uh, when, the, when the coach is suggesting these things, I mean, obviously you've got to try and pick a line between them being altruistic for the good of rugby and actually having one eye on what their players can do well, which, you know, we under, we, we sort of understand that. But when, it, when, a, when an area of difference comes down, who has the final say? Who has the most sway in this? Well, it, it, it'll come then to the process that they have in deciding any law changes um, within the World Rugby, um, rugby uh, Committee. So it'll go to the rugby committee then where it will be voted on then in the procedure that they have there. Now, the exact procedure of how many people are on that and who are they are, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't tell you, but it'll be representative of, of, of the nations who represent people on the world rugby, of course. So that's what will happen. But anything sort of coming down to to a directive then of um, things that will be discussed, you know, that will be discussed with us as a group of referees and saying, well, yes, this this is within the law. This is what the law says. So we as referees need to apply the law and referee it like this. And so that will be with, within the power of us to do that then. But any law change has to go through <clears throat> the rugby committee and through the world rugby process then. And some of those law changes um, could be done quite instantly, I guess. Some of them will be put into trials because they could be trials at different competitions. Others could be trialed uh, within a closed trial. So they just trial them to see how it works in closed games. Others will be introduced into certain competitions, whether it's in, in within different countries. I know in Wales last year in the Premiership in Wales, we, the Principality of Premiership, we <clears throat> we trialed the the six points try um, and the two points um, penalty, whatever it was. So mm-hmm. we trialed that here last year. So then it'll go to a process like that, and then after that process, it's all taken into account. And then it'll be fed back. Well, yes, look, this did work. It worked well. And then they will look to implement that, or they'll say, well, look, no, this. This really caused more trouble than it, than it was worth. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, this law change won't happen. And so that's the process that is done. It's done quite a, quite a good process and quite a thorough process. Really, because what you don't want is is a knee-jerk reaction in changing the law, which you think, well, let's change this to stop this happening. And it has a knock-on effect, which is not good for the game. Nigel, as always, thank you very, very much. Pleasure, Brian. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE business insurance again thank you to my co-host Maggie Alfonsi and uh, to our producer Abby Patterson don't forget to enter the competition to be in a chance win with a chance of winning signed rugby ball remember you can get in contact with us throughout the week via the hashtag full contact and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review 